0: Good morning. I'm the substitute teacher for today, so it'll be nice to me. Uh, let's pray. Lord, I ask that your word would be clear to each of us and that you would speak in very individual ways to everyone in uh, this service and make it clear uh, how you want us to respond. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to put my cheater glasses on here. I'm getting older now. Right, there are certain actors, directors, and film series that I associate with very specific roles and scenes. A kind of typecasting. I expect characters that Liam Neeson plays to have a very particular set of skills to retrieve all abducted relatives. I expect Martin Scorsese to have gritty films. I expect John Wick movies to have casualty rates higher than I can count. But what makes a very memorable movie to me is when an actor or director changes things up a bit. For instance, in the Clint Eastwood movie, Million Dollar Baby, I thought it was going to be about a grizzled old man, a bit grumpy, uh, training a young boxer, and then about halfway through the movie, she becomes paralyzed and the entire narrative takes a dramatic turn. What I expected was not what I experienced as a viewer and that made it very striking. Another example is the Sylvester Stallone franchise of the John Rambo movies. I had seen one or two of the sequels and thought that they were nice, mindless action movies without too much depth. But then I saw the original movie, which explores the post-traumatic stress syndrome of this Vietnam vet. In the final monologue, when Stallone's character breaks down crying in his pain, trying to describe the horrors of war that he's been through. Now that was a very memorable scene, and it honestly showed how broken this man was. I did not expect this from the Rambo character that I had typecast, and that made it very powerful to me. I'll be doing uh, just a very short series on the Psalms this summer, uh, intermittently, and I wanted to sort of think, where would I begin? And I thought, well, I'm gonna type cache the Psalms. Uh, what types of themes and expressions do I associate with the Psalms? Well, praises to God, songs of thankfulness, hymns of beauty to the beautiful world, and there are a lot of psalms that fit these predictable categories. Phrases abound like, praise the Lord, come let us worship and bow down, and how majestic is your name in all the earth! But did you know that? The largest type of psalms, in terms of sheer quantity, do not fit this mold. They don't fit the mold of worship and gratitude. I was shocked to discover not too long ago that up to eight—excuse so, me—up to 70 out of the 150 psalms. 70 out of the 150 psalms are laments, laments where the mood is darker, grief, loneliness, perplexity, anger, frustration feeling of abandonment and disorientation. This was unexpected to me. It did not fit my predetermined set associations that I had about the nature of the Psalms, which I had typecast as about joy and gladness. This overturning of expectations was striking to me. Why would the Psalm writers pour out so many songs of lament from their hearts? Why did the Israelites sing them together in their corporate worship? What encouragement am I supposed to get as an individual reader of these psalms as they draw their dark tones? Is there something significant in the fact that just under half of the psalms include lament? Well, let's begin our exploration here with a a psalm of lament. Uh, and this is the most famous one. It's Psalm 22. It's the one that Christ used to express his own feelings of sorrow. And having come through the Holy Week, we've heard this several times, but it's worth looking at from the angle that this is written by David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night but I find no rest. Now this is an outcry of pain. The words are very raw, forsaken, so far, groaning, no answer, no rest. I know that David would have affirmed the truths that God is present in all things. But the point seems to be here that he doesn't feel that way in the present moment. It doesn't appear that way in the present circumstances. Twice, he calls his Lord his God, which is an act of faith. Twice though, he says, his God is so far away as to leave him feeling abandoned and isolated. Twice he says he has no response from God, either by way of an answer or by a feeling of rest. His disappointment is very real. He does not think it is sinful to ask the why questions directly to God, and so he does openly. These initial lines of this lament are a mixture of faith, an open admission of loneliness, and psychological turmoil. And he registers real complaints. He spells out his struggles with great honesty. In verse 3, he continues in the next uh, slide. so. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So here David pivots and the language shifts. Yet you, he says directly to God. So this perplexity doesn't make him stop talking to God, even if it's only to register his woundedness. And David affirms a series of things he knows to be true of God. And he also affirms uh, the previous acts of God's goodness. God is holy. He is enthroned in majesty. He has moved in the past, particularly to his ancestors. He has showed himself to be dependable. So David knows who God is. He knows how God acts. However, these realities don't seem to align with his current circumstances. These affirmations of faith are followed by a stark admission of his present difficulties, which seem to contradict what he thinks he knows about God. In verse 6, probably the most famous, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So now we're all accustomed to hearing this language and automatically thinking about Jesus's suffering on the cross. And Psalm 22 is rightly read as having these messianic dimensions where the horrors of the crucifixion are described. And it's true that Christ quotes this cry of agony in the psalm to express his own dark night of the soul. But I can't forget, we shouldn't forget, that originally this passage was graphically describing David's turmoil, long before Jesus adopted the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as his own? It's David that feels scorned and despised and less than a man. He's not experiencing deliverance, and he's calling out and he and his God are openly mocked. Now, later in this Psalm, David will describe his sense of trouble with two visceral images. First, it's like he's surrounded by a pack of wild animals that are tearing into him, ravenous lions. He says that their jaws are open. Second, he describes his troubles as being physically tortured, his bones being out of place his limbs pierced in pain, his life poured out like water, he feels left for dead. His heart is melting within him in sorrow. Now, the language which was later literally fulfilled in the death of Christ here is used figuratively to describe how bad he thinks his circumstances are. And the fact that Jesus thinks of this psalm as he is dying and cries it out shows how deeply buried in distress David must have felt. His pain was undeniable. And the the psalm continues in verse 9, "'Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You uh, You made me trust you from my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. And there is none to help. So, this psalm, this section of lament, closes with the words, You have been my God. And this echoes the opening cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, David says he has called the Lord his God since his youngest years. He has not lost faith. His very cries to God show that he still looks to the Lord. Nonetheless, his current experience is that he feels forsaken. He openly pleads with God to be near. Now what can we learn from this most famous of all laments? In Psalm 22, there is a rugged mixture of honesty, pain, a desire to trust, and direct pleas to God. This honest admission of struggle, uh, it's followed by David reminding himself of God's character. But then this is followed by more cries of discouragement. So in this psalm, near despair and implicit faith go side by side and they alternate. This is very human. This is not considered a spiritual deficiency. The key point is that everything is directed to God in real conversation. That's Psalm 22, a psalm of pain. The next psalm has to do with communicating feelings of anger to God. This is a lament of anger in Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of His face, the wicked does not seek Him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. This Psalm, Psalm 10, a lament of anger, it opens in a very similar way, a direct question to God, why are you uninvolved? When it appears like you should intervene, why don't you, where are you? The Psalmist here pointedly asks the Lord why He cannot discern His presence. Now many Proverbs, many Psalms, describe the imminent destruction of the wicked in very clear terms. But here the psalmist cries out in deep frustration that the arrogant are hurting vulnerable people, seemingly without any consequence. In their greed, the wicked are pursuing selfish desires, trampling other people. And even worse, in their pride, they're turning their backs on God. They deny Him. They openly boast in their iniquity, and they are not stopped, and God appears to be distant and unconcerned, and the psalmist openly voices his bewilderment. In verse 5, the anger continues, his ways prosper at all times, your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for the wicked's foes, he puffs at them, he says in his heart, I will not be moved, Throughout all generations, I will not meet adversity. So even more disappointing to the psalmist here is that it appears that the godless are actually succeeding and getting ahead in their lives. How can this be? Psalm 1 clearly says that the wicked are like the chaff which the wind blows away. But instead, it seems like they're blessed beyond what the faithful followers of God can claim they have current prosperity and success, great pride arises in them, they get puffed up, and no judgment seems to touch them. From all appearances, the psalmist has to admit that God seems willing to tolerate a lot of this. There is more than a hint of frustration in the psalm as the poet laments the injustice that he wonders if God is permitting. Then in verse 12, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find no more." So rather than just grumbling, the psalmist calls out in a kind of implicit faith for God to act. He talks directly to God in prayer. In his dismay, he implores God to call the wicked to account. He reminds himself that God does see. And with this confidence, he says to God, arise, intervene. He even expresses a very strong desire that the arm of the oppressor would be broken. This is very direct honesty about the seeming contradictions of the situation. And this is apparently the way that the psalmist is dealing with his feelings of discouragement of the prosperity of the wicked. Why is this type of lament preserved, a lament of anger? Why would we be reading this in the Bible? Why do we recite it together? Perhaps it's a candid admission that we all feel this way from time to time. Rather than vent our anger to other people, God gives us full license to speak very pointedly to Him, pointing out our own frustrations at injustice and the ways that we feel like He is maybe slow to take action. Just like Psalm 22, apparently it's not sinful or wrong to express these darker sentiments to God. It's not even wrong to ask him to arise and to deal very directly with wrongdoers sooner rather than later. This psalm is not an example of harboring hatred for other people, but rather praying with immediacy to God to bring back some order. Psalms of Lament include very specific declarations of what the author wants God to do, very specific requests, vindication, deliverance, support. We're encouraged to say exactly how we feel and to boldly cry out to God to intervene. The last type of Psalm that I'll be looking at this morning of lament is Psalm 88, a lament of darkness. And I'm going to pick up in verse 3. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol to hell. I am counted amongst those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose amongst the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave." Now, this psalm has been called the darkest passage of Scripture. It's certainly the darkest in the entire Psalter. There are many of the laments that alternate between complaints and then outbursts of trust and faith. And there are a few like this one that just show unrelenting sorrow. This this particular Psalm has no explicit expressions of hope, only expressions of sadness. The author suggests that his present experience is like walking amongst the dead, without strength or vitality. And the imagery is very bleak. He's in a pit, He cannot get out of it. He's like someone lying in a grave. And the sense of depression and despair is overwhelming. From the depths, however, the psalmist still speaks to God. And in verse 14, while feeling like he is amongst the grave and in the pit, he says, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors, I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me, your dreadful assaults destroy me, they surround me like a flood all day long, they close in on me altogether. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me, darkness is my only companion." The psalmist here suggests, in his sadness, that perhaps God is actually working against him and actively bringing him trouble and heaviness. Now, the point of this passage is not whether that is an accurate theological statement or not. It's probably not. But the simple fact is that at that moment, the psalmist truly feels that God despises him. The writer probably knows deep down that God is not ultimately the cause or the creator of his pain, but it simply feels like heaven is silent in the midst of the black clouds that surround the horizon. The final statement which ends this psalm, darkness is my only companion, it shows that darkness is the only thing that this follower of God can perceive in the present. It is incredible that such unrelieved grief is so explicitly recorded in the pages of scripture. It's almost shocking what the psalmists are willing to say to God. And yet, in a certain way, it's profoundly comforting to know that none of this language of turmoil, anger, or darkness is out of bounds. For one who addresses their deepest sorrows directly to God. This bleakest of laments is actually a kind of prayer, even though its tone is so raw. And the very fact that it is spoken out gives evidence of an implicit faith that such heartache can be poured out to God. My final thoughts this morning on these Psalms of Lament yes, the Psalter is filled with songs of hymns of praise and expressions of joy and pleasure and gratitude for the beauties of life. And perhaps those are the ones we should read mostly. Um, We have come to expect this uplifting, positive tone in the Psalter. And yet there are just as many Psalms where the mood is unexpectedly heavy. Grief, perplexity, anger, frustration, feeling of abandonment, disorientation, This should capture our attention and cause us to ponder the significance of these laments. Now, the overall message of the Psalms is that God does hear. He does show himself to be faithful. He does uplift the weary in time. Even in some of the laments, suddenly the tone shifts, and there are outright declarations of trust and imminent victory, but not in all of them. There seems to be a recognition in the darker of the laments that we as humans are not always able to perceive these great truths at work in our daily lives. We do feel alone and broken. We want to have faith, but the clouds are hanging low and there's darkness on the horizon. These laments remind us that it is not sinful to express these thoughts to God. It is not a deficiency of faith to pray these concerns directly to Him. Lament is not a failure of faith, but an act of faith. Honest open prayer is not a failure of faith, but an act of faith. Crying out to God in bewilderment is not a failure of faith, but an act of faith. We are not being pious by suppressing feelings of genuine grief. We are not being holy by denying our disappointments. It is not a sign of weakness to lift up hurts, anger, and a sense of being overwhelmed to the Lord. The cry of Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was a prayer and an invocation. It was holy. When we dare to use these laments with their raw and honest language to guide us in our own vulnerable conversations with God. We are strengthened, and we are reminded that the one who hears us suffered his own dark night and understands us. Praise be to God for the freedom he grants us to have real conversations with him, not just of praise and thanksgiving, but also of our deepest laments.